We've been uh, going through the, the meta-narrative of Scripture Sunday mornings here, here at Country Oaks. Um, and if you're not familiar with that term yet, it, it just means the large story of Scripture. What does Scripture stay, say as a whole? And we've been following a, a Sunday school curriculum that has been going on uh, with our um, um, kindergarten all the way up through high school. And today, as we've been going through that curriculum, is actually a review week. And so knowing I was going to pre- preach this week, um, I debated if I was going to do a review or just preach on a topic, and, and this morning I decided to preach on a topic. Um, with that said, I just want to make it very clear that in this church, we believe strongly in verse-by-verse um, expository preaching, which just means letting the Scripture preach itself. Exposit just pretty much means explain the Scripture, and, and that's the goal of the pastors when they come up to preach, is explain Scripture Letting God's Word just be heard Sunday mornings. Lately, we've been taking kind of a wide-angle view, again, going through the meta-narrative of Scripture. And instead of verse-by-verse, we've been doing more passage-by-passage. But still, the goal is letting Scripture preach itself. With that said, I think it's important that time and from time to time, we address topics. Um, not to say that this topic that we're going to address this morning doesn't come from Scripture. I, I hope Scripture is still what is heard this morning. But we're going to look at a topic and what the Scripture as a whole says about this topic. And I want to talk about the topic of the Trinity. I want to think deeply about the Trinity this morning. Um, and before we get started, I'd like to pray, partly because about a week ago, uh, Pastor Brent saw me in the hallway and says, Hey, how does it feel to be preaching on a subject that you're always one word away from a heresy? I said, uh, you know, I haven't thought about it till just now. So let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, just thank you uh, for this morning. Uh, God, I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. You've taken the infinite nature of you and, and have explained it to us in a way we can understand, Lord, but, but at the same time knowing that, that you're beyond our understanding. So God, help us hold on to that tension. What you have revealed to us, we are responsible to know. And God, I pray that this morning we feel that weight, that we think deeply about who you are. And as we come out of this morning's worship, that we're in just awe of you, in awe that you are three, yet one. So be with us this morning as we look into this uh, deep, hard passage. And I just pray that you guard my lips from anything that your scripture does not clearly teach. God, let your scripture be heard this morning. Amen. Just a quick side note. I want to give a plug real, real quick. Um, right now, not in this service, but in first service, there's a class called the Fundamentals of the Faith. And we're blessed to have Mike Thompson, who's a gifted teacher um, here at our church, leading this class. And honestly, we're blessed as a church to have this class offered. Um, with that said... Uh, I want to just just encourage you um, that if you were thinking about taking this class, don't let the name fool you. This is an extremely deep class. Even though it's the fundamentals of the faith, we, the class goes through the fundamentals in a, in a very deep fashion and, and really tackles them. Um, it's for both new Christians, new believers, and those that have been Christians a long time that just want to know the fundamentals better. Um, honestly... I believe that everyone in our church 
should go through this class at least once. So um, if you have a, the class is about halfway through right now, so it's not a good time to jump into it. But we're going to offer this class again, and I would encourage you to really contemplate or really think about taking this class. And I bring this up because what I'm covering today is kind of what you're going to get in this class on all different types of topics that maybe you wonder why we do things a certain way or why we believe things a certain way. Well, that class will dig into it and, and you will understand. So I encourage you to, to, to look into maybe taking that class. With that said, I want to ask this question. Why think deeply about these things? Today's sermon is probably going to be more, well, it is, it's more of a theological lesson than it is a sermon. And why? Well, I feel we would fail as pastors if we didn't arm you with the knowledge to defend the faith. Especially in your own heart. Especially in your own heart. Um, I was questioning, I'm like, should I preach on this? Should I not preach on this? I went back and forth for a while. And... um, I decided to preach on it, and uh, about two days ago, I was at my parents' house, and a Jehovah Witness came to the door. And we sat and had a good conversation about the Trinity. A couple things hit me. One is um, he twisted the scripture to fit his own doctrine, but he knew every single verse that I went over and how to twist it. And if you're not prepared in your own heart, you're going to meet some, some strong... Um, arguments that might lead you astray. So it's our duty to to help you think deeply about these things. So it's important that we think deeply about these things. I once had a student in my apologetics class who happens to be here this morning. um, I won't mention his name. uh, Ask me, he kind of saw the writing on the wall that persecution's coming. So what happens when we we lose our job for being a Christian? What what do we need to do to get prepared for this? And... um, my question or my answer to him is think deeply now of what why you believe and what you believe cultivate strong convictions in your heart on on God's word and God's truth it needs to be stronger than well we just always have believed that way or our church believes it so i believe it or i grew up in a family that believed in the trinity therefore i believe in the trinity it needs to be stronger than that it needs to be a strong conviction if you're going to face persecution. So today's sermon is going to be more of an apologetic sermon. If you don't know what that word means, apologetics is the field of Christian theology which presents reasoned answers for the Christian faith. Or another way of putting it is uh, defending the faith against objections. I have two goals this morning, and hopefully we'll get through both of them. One, to show the biblical support for the Trinity, and two, To show the need for a triune God in understanding our world. There's three questions I would like to answer today. We're going to try to answer two. The first one is, does the Bible demand and support the doctrine of the Trinity? Second question, does the doctrine of the Trinity make logical sense? And third, we won't get to this one, but hopefully one day I'll get a chance to, to just... There, this is a whole sermon within it. So this is a couple sermons within itself. Um, and there's some good books on this if you, if you want uh, me to recommend some for you. But how does the doctrine of the Trinity impact our lives? I'm going to start this sermon by asking a question. What is your ultimate authority? What is your ultimate authority? What do I mean by that? Well, let me take a question within that question 
how do we take a belief in something to a knowledge of something? How do we take a belief in something to a knowledge of something? Let me give you an example. This may sound silly, but, but we do this daily. What if I said, hey, I believe it's sunny outside. How would I take that to, I know it's sunny outside? Everyone said it, go outside. Right? And look. What are you doing when you do that? You're proving your belief. You're justifying your belief. We need to justify our beliefs to make them knowledge. And the definition of knowledge, I think a good definition of it is justified true beliefs. Beliefs that we have justified. And there's three main ways, there's many ways to justify beliefs, but there's three main ways of justifying beliefs. One, empirical observation, and that's just your five senses, a fancy word for your five senses, and that's what you're doing when you go outside to see, to feel, if it's sunny outside. Another way to justify your beliefs is reason. This is how we know two plus two equals four. We know that because reason makes it reasonable. And therefore we know. But a third way, which is rejected by a lot of people, but here is revelation. God's revealed word. What God has revealed to us is a way of justifying our beliefs. And here's the deal. Whatever your ultimate justifier is, is also your ultimate authority. Whatever your ultimate justifier is, is also your ultimate authority. Therefore, if God's revelation, the scripture, if the Bible is your ultimate justification or ultimate authority, you must believe it even if it can't be explained by empirical observation or reason. And you know, as Christians, we do this all the time without really thinking about it. For example, miracles. I've never seen a sea part. I don't know in my head reasonably how that happens, yet I know it happened. Because God's word told me so. Angels, Satan, I've never seen any of these. I can't reason to them, but I know they exist. Because God's word is my ultimate justification to knowledge. I know they exist. Supernatural events, say a talking snake. It happened. I know it happened. Is God's word, virgin birth, and so forth. Here's the deal. The Trinity is one of the hardest doctrines because it can't be justified by empirical observation, our five senses, or reason alone. In other, in other words, empirical observation or reason alone will not get you to the Trinity. Yet, it is a foundational belief in Christianity. Why? Simply, we find it in God's word. God has revealed it to us. Now, let me be clear as we get going here. The word Trinity is not in the, in the Bible. It's a, it's a word we have put to the doctrine to, so we know what we're talking about when we're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. But the word Trinity is not in the Bible. There's not even a passage that clearly explains the Trinity. Yet, the Bible as a whole does claim three things clearly. First, God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Second, each person is fully God. And third, there is one God. 
a shortened way of saying this is God is one in essence, yet three in persons. Not because empirical observation or five senses or reason has told us this, but because God's word has revealed this to us. So we should answer this question. Does God's word demand and support these three points? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons. All three persons are fully God, fully divine. There's one God in essence. Let's go through these three points. I'm going to go through scriptures very quickly. If you want to follow along, please do. If you want to just write them down, that's great. If you want to just listen, that would be awesome too. So uh, the first point, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons. Jesus' baptism. Matthew 3.16 says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the waters, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Three distinct persons. The Spirit descending like a dove. The Father saying, This is my beloved Son. And the Son who is being baptized. Just a side note, as I was talking with this Jehovah Witness, he used this passage to prove that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct. And I said, yes. It's part of the doctrine of the Trinity. Yes, they're distinct persons. Kind of caught him off guard. But let's keep going. Are they distinct persons? Jesus' ascension. Uh, John sixteen seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. How could it be to, to anyone's advantage that Jesus goes away? For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Spirit is the helper that's clear in the scriptures, and it's Jesus had to go, so the Spirit would come. They're distinct individuals. And interesting enough, I will send him, personal pronoun, masculine personal pronoun to you. The Spirit, the helper, is a person. But we'll talk about that in a second. Interesting passage, John 14, 26, which says, But the Helper, again, that's the Holy Spirit, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. The Helper, again, the Spirit. The sender in this passage is the Father, and the one speaking is the Son. They are without a doubt distinct. There's many other passages, but we're going to move on here. Here's a, que- here's a question we need to answer after that. Are they all persons? They're distinct, but are they all persons? People don't have trouble with the Father and the Son having personhood, typically. But the Spirit, some struggle. Again, and I'm not trying to pick on Jehovah Witnesses, but, but this is a doctrine that you guys are facing. They would say the Holy Spirit is a power or a force, but has no personhood. The Bible doesn't describe the Holy Spirit as a person. Well, there's at least four ways the Bible does show the Holy Spirit is having personhood. The first, and I think this is very significant, the Spirit is referred to as He, not it. There is a a neuter personal pronoun in Greek, and it's not used for the Holy Spirit. The masculine personal pronoun is used for the Holy Spirit. He, Him. Second, the Spirit is responded to as a person. Example, the Holy Spirit can be obeyed, Acts 10, 19 through 21, resisted, Acts 7, 51, lied to, Acts 5, 3, insulted, Hebrews 10, 29, grieved, 
Ephesians 4.30, and blaspheming, Mark 3.28. The Holy Spirit also demonstrates the actions of a person. He speaks, Acts 8.2. He teaches, John 14.26. He distributes spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12.11. Convicts the world of sin, John 16.8. Searches, 1 Corinthians 2.10. Testifies, John 15, 26, guides and directs, Acts 16, 6 through 7, all traits of personhood. And the Holy Spirit possesses attributes of a person. Intellect, 1 Corinthians 2, 10. Emotion, Ephesians 4, 30. A will, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Therefore, The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons. But are they all fully God? Are they all fully divine? Well, the Father is God. Again, this is not debated. There's verses I could use to to show this, but but let's jump into Jesus as being God. And there's way more to this than the little bit I'm giving you right now. Um, But let me give you some of my strongest arguments that I see uh, throughout the scriptures. Just John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word's clearly Jesus, as you go through this passage. Was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you know Greek, it wasn't the Word was a God. The Word was God. And if the Word was a God, and you're claiming to be monotheistic, you have troubles, as a Jehovah Witness does, because there's a God and a God. That's two. But the Trinity says there's one God. The Word was God. Jesus himself claimed to be God in John eight fifty eight. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Clearly pointing back to uh, Exodus three fourteen, when Moses asked the name of God. And God said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Jesus clearly is pointing back to that. And you know what? The Pharisees picked it up. Because they also picked up stones to throw at him. Anyone knew Hebrew well it was the Pharisees, and they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. Also, Jesus doesn't deny that he was God. John uh, twenty twenty eight says, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have um, not seen and yet have believed. Blessed those that have not seen and yet have believed. Well, have believed what? That Jesus is Lord and God. Jesus also lets people worship him. Matthew 28, 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Every time Jesus is is worshipped, he doesn't stop the people from worshipping him. And the Bible is very clear that God alone deserves our worship. Either Jesus is sinning, allowing and promoting idolatrous worship of someone other than God, or Jesus is God. Well, is the Holy Spirit God? Is the Holy Spirit divine? Acts 5, 3-4 says this. Just listen to this carefully. We'll come back to it as I'm done reading this, but listen. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourselves part of the proceeds of the land, while it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? 
Why is it that you have um, contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Let me just read that again. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? A little bit later, you have not lied to man, but to God. A couple of things. Holy Spirit's a person. You can't lie to a force. And two, the Holy Spirit is God. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says this, Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The spirit is called Lord, which shows personhood to be a Lord, but it's also a godly title. And here's a question. How can you blaspheme the Holy Spirit if he is not a person and not divine? He has to be both. Matthew 12, 31 through 32 says, Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven uh, people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. The Bible also ascribes divine attributes to the Holy Spirit, such as life, truth, love, holiness, eternality, omnipresence, and omniscience. And listen to some of the titles of the Holy Spirit. Spirit of Truth, 1 John 5, 6. Spirit of Life, Romans 8, 2. Living Water, John 7, 38-39. Spirit of Glory, 1 Peter 4, 14. And Holy Spirit, hundreds of times. I mean, think about this. Just think. These are the same titles given separately to the Father and to Jesus. Therefore, the Bible claims that the Holy Spirit is fully a person and fully God. So, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons. All three are fully God, yet there is one God in essence. This is what separated Israel from all the pagan nations. All the pagan nations in the Old Testament and the New Testament were polytheistic. Poly meaning many. Theistic comes from the word theos, which is God. Many gods they believed in. Israel was radically monotheistic. Mono, one, theos, God, one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 45.5 says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And on and on and on. We can get all types of verses that say as clearly claims Old Testament and New Testament that there is one God. Therefore, God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, and there is one God in essence. Another way of putting this is there is one true God of the Bible that has revealed himself to exist in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The early church, when, when it first was coming around and, 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 and looking at the Bible and what it said, kind of wrestled with this doctrine. And they concluded that God is one in essence and three in persons, exactly what, what we've been preaching this morning. Then as they started going through the scriptures, they started seeing what we call Trinitarian passage that just agree with this doctrine. Listen to some of these passages. 1 Peter 1, 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, 
in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God. Same Spirit, same Lord, same God. Well, probably my favorite is Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, which says, and this is what we baptize people in the name of, therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, which in the Greek is singular, not the names, the name, one name, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. These passages line up perfectly with the doctrine of the Trinity that we see throughout Scripture. And there's more. Again, this is just a quick overview. Therefore, the Bible does demand and support the doctrine of the Trinity. But does the doctrine of the Trinity make logical sense? I think so. Third point. Just joking. (laughs) You had to write an essay on this, and I was like, I want to say yes, but does it? Sometimes we say we can't understand, I feel like, too quickly. Again, let me just be clear. This doctrine, we can't understand completely. I'm not saying we can. I'm not not claiming that. But sometimes we say we can't understand too quickly and never dig in deeply and try to understand. Again, we are not responsible for knowing everything about God and how everything works. But we are responsible to study and try our best to know everything that God has revealed to us. We're responsible for that. I think sometimes we say we can't know and we don't study it. So I want to look at this this apologetically. Many people say that the Trinity is, uh, is a contradiction or illogical. Let's just think very clearly about this. I want to just talk about three different words. Contradictions, paradoxes, and mysteries. What's the difference between those three things? Well, contradictions say something is and isn't at the same time. It's illogical. doesn't make sense. In the study of logic, we call, um, we call the law of non-contradictions, meaning this can't happen. A cannot be non-A. And here's something that we need to make very clear. There is no contradictions in the Bible. There is no contradictions in the Bible. Second, paradoxes. What's a paradox? It's something that seems like a contradiction, or something that seems illogical, but under further investigation isn't. Optical illusions are like this. If you see a train tracks and you look down the train tracks, it looks like the train tracks cross, but you know they don't. Well, it's a paradox. Or if you put water or a stick in, in a glass of water and it seems like the stick bends and you pull it out and it didn't. Something that seems illogical, but it isn't. When you figure out that light bends because of water and and you examine it a little bit further. There's a lot of these in the Bible. For example, those that lose their life will gain it. That's a paradox. When you first hear that, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. But then you study it and you realize those that lose their life here, their worldly life, will gain a better life, a life with God. Or the last will be first. That doesn't make any sense. That's illogical. No, it's not. Saying those that put others first will be first in God's economy. It makes sense when you further examine it. 
So there's no contradictions in the Bibles. There's many paradoxes in the Bibles, but there's also what we call mysteries. It's something that seems illogical, yet we know it's not illogical, but we don't know how it's not illogical. Examples, God existing from eternity past. No idea how that is. Or Jesus being 100% divine and 100% man. And here's something that's really interesting. And I talk about this a lot, and I've said this up here before. One of them that just gets me excited is that there is a, a mystery in the Old Testament that's revealed to us in the New. The Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, said God is 100% just. Meaning, he will make sure every sin is paid for. Yet, God is also 100% merciful. Meaning, he'll make sure some will not pay for their sins. That seems like a contradiction. Until in the New Testament is revealed that God takes that justice and puts it on Jesus' back. So he can be merciful to us. 100% just and 100% merciful. And it makes complete logical sense. That actually gives me hope that some of these mysteries may be revealed to us in the future. Let me be clear. The, the Trinity is not a contradiction. Listen to this. The, it would be a contradiction if we said one essence and three essences. That's illogical. It would be a contradiction if we said one person and three persons. That's illogical. But we say one essence and three persons. That's a mystery. It's a mystery. Jonathan Edwards is one of the greatest thinkers um, that's ever lived in America. And he has been quoted saying, I think the doctrine of the Trinity to be the highest and deepest of all divine mysteries. Let me give you just a side note, too, to maybe bring some comfort in this. There's mysteries in the physical universe, too. We don't have a clue how black holes work. But we don't say they don't exist. We don't say they're illogical. Ask, ask a scientist how quantum physics works, and he'll give you a puzzled look. But we don't say it's not logical or doesn't exist. At one time, gravity was a mystery. But no one said gravity is not real. Not understanding does not equal not real. So what is your ultimate authority? You know, another time a Jehovah Witness came to my door and started by asking me that. Hey, what is your ultimate authority? What is your authority? And I asked it back. I said, what is your authority? I asked him, I said this, if, just if, right, if. If the Bible claims that God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and if... It claims that each person is fully God, and yet at the same time it claims that there is only one God. Would you believe it? He said, no, that doesn't make any sense. And I said, the Bible isn't your ultimate authority. Reason is. This is where we get ourselves in trouble. When we start putting our reason above the scriptures. There's four heresies that the church has struggled with, especially in the early days, but still today. Let me just read you so you're aware of these heresies, because sometimes we are in heresy just by how we say it. Again, as Brent said, we're always, when we're talking about the Trinity, one word away from the heresy. We've got to be very clear. This is the nature of God we're talking about. This is important. The first heresy is called modalism. It's God in three modes. The idea suggests that God acts in three different modes, 
but is only one person. God appears as the Father in the Old Testament, as Jesus in the Gospel, and the Spirit in the present age. One of the ways we, we promote modalism is saying God is like, and you might have said this, please don't beat yourself up too much. Um, all analogies break at some point. That God is like ice, water, and gas. That's, that's H2O in three different modes. There's churches today that believe this. Second um, heresy, which was one of the, the biggest heresies we saw in the early church, was Arianism. Named from the 4th century teacher Arius. And he spread this bad theology, listen to this, through music. Music is an extremely important way of teaching theology. We should be very careful as a church what we sing here and what we spread theology through music. He spread this heresy through music. This view teaches that Jesus and the Holy Spirit were created by the God the Father. This idea was condemned at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. Adoptionism, another view. This view teaches that Jesus was an ordinary man until, at his baptism, he was adopted by the Father and given supernatural powers and the status of Son of God. And lastly, uh, Unitarianism. This view, this view holds that there is a single God with no distinct persons. Whether Jesus or the Father is God, whether if Jesus or the Father is God varies, but many present-day Unitarians reject the pre-existence of Jesus, insisting that he began to exist at the virgin birth. All these doctrines overemphasize either God's unity in essence or God's diversity in persons. But the Bible proclaims both in perfect harmony. Today, the majority of people that you're going to face are Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, and Islam. Very strongly deny, and that's one of the things, if you get in a conversation with a Muslim, he will go to the Trinity. He will go to the Trinity. Why is this important? Well, number one, because the Bible teaches it. Right? That's why it's important. It's God's reveal word revealing himself to us. But number two, our salvation requires it. Listen to this. The death, of a, the death of a mere man, no matter how noble, cannot provide the purchase price required to redeem other men from their sins against an infinite God. Because the price of sin is infinite. But because Jesus is God, is eternal, and is infinite, he alone is able to satisfy the penalty of sin. In other words, Jesus has to be of infinite value to pay an infinite price. I want to take a, this a, a step deeper this morning. and If I lose you this morning, it's probably because of my teaching ability, but... Um, but just stick, stick with me the best you can um, on this. I want to take it a step deep, deeper and look at this from a, a presuppositional apologetics approach. I claim that the Bible is trustworthy because it says it is. And I claim that through faith. I claim that the Bible is trustworthy because it says it is, and it allows us to make sense of the world or reality. It's a reasonable faith. 
What do we see in reality? Unity or diversity? You know what we see? A universe. Uni, unity, diversity, verse. A universe. We see a world full of unified diversities. I mean, think about this. Okay, if you see a cloud in the sky, is it one cloud or many clouds? From the ground, it's clearly one cloud. But if you're in a plane driving through it, or flying through it, it would seem like billions of water drops. Let me ask again, is it one cloud or billions of water drops? Both. It's unified, one cloud, diversity, many water drops. What about it, like an oak tree? The oak tree outside. If you cut off a branch from that oak tree, is it less than one oak tree? No. What do we see? One oak tree with many parts. A unified diversity. Or maybe the human body. If you lose an arm, are you less than a human now? No, you're still fully human. Philosophers have argued for thousands of years about whether reality is one or many, unified or diverse. And it's clear, it's both. This is called the one and the many problem. I believe that the university of creation reflects the creator in both unity, one essence, and diversity, three persons. Let me give you just some examples of this. We talked about the universe, which the name itself shows that. The physical world, clouds, oak trees, human bodies, and we can go on and on and on and on. But what about relationships? Marriage and family. Listen to this. Genesis 1.27 says this. So God created man in his own image. God's image. In the image of God, he created him. How did he create him? Male and female, he created them. Marriage models God. Unity, one flesh. Diversity, roles, gifting, relationship, authority, gender. It's one of the reasons the attack on marriage is such a big deal. It's an attack on man's image of God. What about the family? Well, husband, wife, we just talked about that. The husband, the Bible clearly states, has authority over the wife who both have authority over their child. Similarly, like the father who has authority over the son, who both have authority over the Holy Spirit. Yet, you would not say any one of those, or you should not say any one of those people within the family structure is less valuable In essence, the husband is just as valuable as the wife is just as valuable as a child. They're all 100% equal in value and in essence. What about the church body? It should model God. Our church should model God. Unified in one body. Having the same mind. You know, I Google, or I didn't Google, I looked this up on uh, um, Lagos. How many times uh, 
the word uh, unity is used with the, with the church. Um, and, and most of the time it says having the same mind. The same mind. We have the mind of Christ. Meaning we, we have the same doctrine. Because that's where we get doctrine from. In theology, what we believe. We're unified on that. Unified in the spirit. Unified in purpose. Unified in love. But diverse in roles, giftings, and relationships. We are one unity, body, diverse parts. Even knowledge itself. University. This is where we go to learn at a university. Diverse in the fields of study. Different colleges, if that's what a university is. You can have a college if it just has one field of study. But if you go to a university, there's many colleges within that university, different fields of study, the sciences, the humanities, the philosophy, and so on. And they understand, the universities, that there's some sort of unity that unifies them. Here's the problem. They don't know what it is. They do. They're struggling with this. They're struggling to find what unifies all knowledge. Here's what unifies all knowledge, the worship of God. This is why we're going through the meta-narrative of Scripture, because it's the meta-narrative of everything. It's what unifies everything. Therefore, the concept of a triune God not only passes criticism, but also should be expected. If the creation is full of unified diversity, diversity, then it's logical to assume that the Creator Himself is a more complex unified diversity. It's like saying the creation is glorious, therefore God is more glorious. Or creation is big, therefore God's bigger. That just makes sense. Although the cloud analogy fails to fully illustrate the complexity of a triune God, one should expect the creation to reflect the Creator on a limited level. Thus, it makes sense for God to be more complex, unified diversity as the creator of a world full of unified diversities. Someone asked Francis Schaeffer, if you don't know Francis Schaeffer, I would suggest to read him. He's an amazing apologist and just a famous Christian intellect. He would be asked by colleges, secular colleges, to come speak. People very very much respected this man's intellect. And, And... Um, someone asked him once if he was embarrassed on an intellectual standpoint on the doctrine of the Trinity. This is his answer. Nobody else, no philosophy, has ever given us an answer for unity and diversity. So when people ask me whether we are embarrassed intellectually by the Trinity, I always switch it over into their own terminology, unity and diversity. Every philosophy has this problem, and no philosophy has an answer. Christianity does have an answer in the existence of the Trinity. The only answer to what exists is He, the triune God, is there. So, does the Bible demand and support the doctrine of the Trinity? Clearly, God is one in essence and three in persons. Does the doctrine of the Trinity make logical sense? Well, I would say two things. One, the Trinity is clearly not illogical. We we talked about that. And two, and second, if God made the world to reflect his nature, which the Bible clearly says that, and the world is full of unified diversities, 
we should not be surprised that God himself is a unified diversity. From a logical standpoint, we should expect it. I would like to answer, and maybe we'll get a chance um, some other time, how does the doctrine of the Trinity impact our lives? This is what blew me away more than anything else. I started reading up on this, and it's so important that we understand the doctrine of the Trinity so we can model it in our relationships. One day I'd like to have time to do a sermon just on this one point alone, but today is not the day. Let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father God, I just thank you so much for revealing yourself to us. God, you did not have to reveal yourself in the way you did, showing us that you are three in persons and, and one in essence and blowing us away with that, that fact, Lord, that we can't comprehend it, that we just have to bow down and believe it, that your word should be our ultimate authority because it makes sense of reality, it makes sense of the world we live in. But more than that, because it says it's trustworthy, that it comes from you, the one that knows everything. We should expect that there's things that we can't know. And that being your nature, especially. God, help us wrestle with this doctrine. Help us not just to pass by it as something that, of course, we believe because we're Christians. Or say, well, it's just too complicated. I don't want to spend time on it. Help us to... to to spend, meditate, think about, read, study who you are. It's the most important part of theology, is studying who you are. It's the most important part of reading the scriptures, it's just studying who you are. God, help us to have confidence as we go out in the world that will we'll deny you, will deny your nature, which will say, I can't understand, therefore it can't be true. God, how arrogant. Help us as a church not be that. Help us submit to your word. Help us love you as you truly are. Because if we don't have you as God, we have a false God. So God, I pray that you're with us. Be with our minds. Be with our hearts. Amen.